we're very excited to have Kesha Dasher Kuzuno here, who is a um, Berkeley Miller postdoc fellow uh, at in Roland Bergman's group at the UC Berkeley Seismo Lab. Uh, Kellyan did his graduate work at UC Santa Cruz with Emily Brodsky on forecasting landscapes and earthquakes. Uh, and he makes really uh, important connections between the physical and statistical modeling worlds of earthquake forecasting and how we can learn more from the earthquake catalogs that we've augmented with machine learning. Take it away. Awesome. So. Today, I'm going to inflict upon you some of my views on earthquake forecasting. And in particular, as Max was saying, I'm very interested in how we can sort of tie insight from earthquake physics, tie new data into our current forecasting machinery. And to start things off, this is kind of my worldview of how I think about earthquake forecasting. It lives somewhere between random guessing, which was where I was when before I started my PhD, and does significantly better that even if you're kind of informed about earthquake physics, it seems to work pretty well. But that being said, we're pretty far shot from earthquake prediction. And I'll, I'll also note that I kind of keep the arrow going because I'm kind of the opinion that we might predict one earthquake before we predict 10 earthquakes or all of them. So I really think that we are a field, there's a lot of growth that is possible, and I think there's a lot of opportunity to improve our operational earthquake forecasts. So what are the pathways towards improved earthquake forecasting? And when I answer this question, I imagine like walking into a time machine going 10 years in the future and running to the USGS office and saying, how is earthquake forecasting doing? Because that's the most important thing, of course. And they tell me it's significantly improved. And upon hearing that, my mind wanders, well, my mind considers whether it's one of sort of these four things. I would guess that if we significantly improve earthquake forecasting, it's because we've improved the sort of classical methods for earthquake forecasting, or it's because of like we discover some strange precursor, or it's because we were able to integrate some new sort of uh, data about earthquakes into the earthquake forecast, or that we're going to just end up with a fundamentally different modeling approach. There are people in this room that are significantly better at doing, you know, the improvements on the classical methods, and I can't think of any re weird precursors right now, so I'm really going to dwell on the latter two elements in this presentation. So just to give a rough outline of what I'll be talking today, I'll be talking about aftershock productivity and how different factors from the setting, from the source, influence aftershock productivity. I'll be talking about a global compilation of subduction zone slow slip events and how they're related to earthquake rates. And I'll kind of try to tie the knot together with a new modeling approach that I've been trying to introduce in the field of earthquake statistics that leverages recent developments in machine learning. I had to get rid of my video slide. There were videos here. But um, when you go through a simple exercise of literally just taking the big earthquakes around the world and you know, consider some window of space and time around it, count the aftershocks. If you do this exercise, you end up with this pretty remarkable scaling relationship. So here I'm plotting on the x-axis the magnitude of the main shock. On the y-axis, the number of aftershocks in the log scale. 
let's just focus for a moment on the square markers. Those are the median number of aftershocks per magnitude bin. And those follow the scaling relationship astonishingly well. To first order, big earthquakes have more aftershocks. But I'd like to just focus for a moment on the scatter around this relationship. It is an astonishing amount of scatter. And, and just for all intents and purposes, it's this scaling relationship that is informing how we do earthquake forecasts. Take a moment to let this sink in. We cannot say with absolute certainty, the, the best we can say with absolute certainty is that there's going to be somewhere between zero to a thousand earthquakes after <laughs> of magnitude 4.5 and above. You can do better, of course, by like, like using the early aftershocks to inform your aftershock forecast. But this is kind of the state of things. We're really bound by a very random, a seemingly very complex and possibly even random process. So uh, just I'm going to lay down a definition very quickly here. When I'm going to talk about earthquakes that are productive, I mean they fall above the scaling relationship. Earthquakes that are unproductive are below the scaling relationship. Make sense? And I'm going to be exploring why some earthquakes are more productive, some earthquakes are less productive. So what the hell is controlling these you know, three orders of uh, magnitude of variation around the scaling relationship? So the way I see it, kind of like a ternary diagram, you can see my roots as a geologist here, ternary diagram of how we can think of aftershock productivity. It might be completely random. It might just be that such a complex process and it's so nonlinear that it's just random. Or maybe there's something about the setting, like you know, the geology, that constrains how an aftershock sequence is going to evolve. Or maybe there's something about the source, like maybe you know, the earthquake radiates more seismic shaking and that causes more ensuing following earthquakes. I think it's kind of intriguing to try to place our current practices on this plot. So the way I see it, our current practices uh, use a combination of setting and randomness. So they are regionalized statistical models uh, of the earthquakes following a big earthquake. And so some, one interesting note from that is that kind of it's contingent on having information about earthquakes in that place in the first place. And early on in my PhD, I was talking to my co-advisor, Thorne, who's like done a lot of detailed work on you know, a lot of the big earthquakes around the world. And when he was sort of forecasting the aftershock sequences for big earthquakes, let's say in Vanuatu, where you don't have very good earthquake statistics for that place, he would say, well, this is a thrust fault earthquake. It's in this type of geologic environment. He was using geological insight and analogs don't need to be in the same place, but share some characteristics to inform the aftershock forecast. At least that's what he was doing in his mind. And this first project that I did during my PhD was really trying to formalize that intuition to something a bit more quantitative. So the approach I'll take here is, are similar do similar events tend to have similar aftershock sequences? And there's another question that underlies this question, which is, what is an earthquake that is similar? And to reiterate what I was saying before, I think earthquakes that share a tectonic setting, share depth, share their geology, share characteristics of the source, that's what those are similar earthquakes. 
that's really what should be informing how the aftershock sequence might, might evolve, or at least this is something that we can test. All right, so at the beginning, I presented this rather crude way of counting the aftershocks, but if you are a declustering snob and you want a, some, something more sophisticated, rest assured that like all the results were done with a more fancy way of counting aftershocks, and you really end up with the same answers. Turns out, you know, aftershocks occur around big earthquakes. And without a doubt, I think this is the coolest plot that came out of this research. So this is simply a map, a global map of aftershock productivity for all main shocks larger than 6.5 with a completeness of 4.5. And already just by looking at this map, I can glean that this is not entirely random, right? Like the blue dots are, are clustered together, the yellow dots are clustered together. So these blue dots are less productive, the yellow dots are more productive. And there's also some patterns, you know, I look at the oceanic uh, transform faults, they seem maybe less productive. Uh, there might even be trends with like plate age. So there's this map alone is like the coolest thing that I'll present in the first third of this presentation. And I'm not the first person to think about this. Folks at the USGS, uh, in fact, uh, recommended that the, geologic, the geological context, in particular, some rough subdivision of tectonic environments should inform, should be a key ingredient in improving earthquake forecasts. Um, so we did an analysis that's rather similar. So here I'm just considering earthquakes sort of associated with each of these different uh, tectonic environments. I just want to quickly highlight some things consistent with what I was gesturing towards on the map. Uh, indeed, it seems like the oceanic transform faults are, you know, a factor of 10 less productive than your typical earthquake. And conversely, a lot of the environments where you're kind of like, smushing two things on top of each other, then you, you tend to be more productive than the typical earthquake of comparable magnitude. And what I really wanted to do here is uh, fold in some information about the source. So two important data sets were coming into this. One was a global compilation of radiated energy uh, by Converse and Newman, available in IRIS. And then thanks to works, by Gavin Hayes, who really provided a uniform database of finite fault inversions for, I think, every single magnitude 7.5 and above, we were able to derive a bunch of information about uh, these main shocks. So their dimensions, their aspect ratios, the heterogeneity, um, rupture duration, velocity, and Another thing that we did in the study, which in its own right is kind of interesting, we recalculated the stress drops for all of these ruptures, accounting for the complex geometry and slip distribution. So that's what the sort of covariates that we're investigating. And typically when I've given this talk, I inflicted like a ton of scatter plots upon everyone. And I'm just gonna try to summarize the results as best I can instead. So here I, took all of those scatter plots and put them on one plot. I'm plotting the relative productivity as a function of nothing. Um, one thing that should really like jump in your face here is that the very deep earthquakes are 
dramatically less productive than any other earthquake. And then you can, can kind of march along, and I've made it a bit easier for you guys here. The blue aspects are aspects of the setting. The yellow aspects are aspects of the source. The setting really are the first order impacts on uh, the aftershock productivity and the source do to some degree, particular things like long aspect ratios, maybe high stress drops, which you can think of as a measure of the compactness of the rupture, tend to have fewer aftershocks. So to summarize this even further, I think it's interesting to look at the least productive environments. So the least productive settings are very deep or very young. And the way I infer this is that those are the places where there's the least seismogenic crust. So for example, if you take an earthquake and you arrange its geometry relative to the available volume in a way to completely saturate the seismogenic zone, there's no room above or below to have aftershocks. So that's my interpretation here is that the, oops, why is this not moving? Yeah. So the volume and the geometry of the rupture relative to the volume really seem to be the first order controls on aftershock productivity. And it's really just a space problem. So I played a bit of a game just to tie the knot on this little, on this project where I said, okay, let's consider aspects that very clearly dictate the available volume and aspects that dictate the compactness and the orientation of the fault relative to that volume and compare it to a forecast only using information about the location. So there's like these two little, I'm not even gonna call them machine learning, like the simplest possible ML predictions that you can make. So here we're trying to get on the one-to-one -one line. We're predicting the scatter around that. We're predicting the aftershock productivity. And so on your left, uh, I'm using earthquakes that are nearby to inform the aftershock forecast. So we simply say like, let's just average the aftershock productivity of the previous earthquakes that were you know, within some distance of the main shock. That does an okay job. Like there's a signal there where we're predicting some of it, but really not that much. Whereas if we just use this conceptual model to inform the predictions of the relative productivity, then we're in much better shape. So, and this is really information that was derived from, you know, physically thinking about how this uh, process might work. All right, let me just summarize what I was just saying. <laughs> Looking at aftershock productivity, I think there's this complementary way of, of informing aftershock forecasts. And I want to be clear that it doesn't need to supersede the existing machinery, but rather it can really very independently inform, uh, as for example, as priors, current forecasting models. And it really seems that this global analysis highlights how the factors that are influencing how the earthquake happens might also in influence how the aftershock sequence unfolds. And really the key control, control seems to be something, or at least the story is consistent with like the volume and the geometry relative to the volume controlling these aftershock sequences. All right. Okay, moving forward, we're stepping in the time machine, going to my postdoc. Um, now I'm going to talk about a global compilation of slow slip events on 
uh, mega thrusts and the relationship to earthquakes. So I want to be I don't want to introduce too much jargon here. Roughly 20 years or so, uh, people started looking more carefully at their GPS and what they originally discarded as essentially noise seemed to be somewhat coherent. And this led to the discovery of what are known as slow slip events. For all intents and purposes, slow slip events are just like an earthquake, but they don't shake the ground. And instead of occurring in seconds or minutes, they're occurring over days or up to a year or a few years. And while originally we just had a few observations and a few places that had really good instrumentation, as we intensified our effort to find these slow slip events, seems they seem to be a reasonably ubiquitous phenomenon. And I think we're really on an interesting stage of our study of slow slip events, which at this stage is quite mature, where a lot of independent regional analyses have accumulated catalogs of slow slip events. So me, as a aspiring earthquake uh, uh, statistical seismologist, I get to have enough slow slip events to do you know, statistics with them. Oh. So I've pestered just about every single person that studies slow slip events and harassed them by email for their data. And this is what I ended up with, a global compilation of slow slip events, uh, mostly for Japan, for New Zealand, for Mexico, for Costa Rica, and Cascadia. And so these are big. These are slow slip events that are 5.5 and above. So just take a moment. If this was an earthquake, you would have tons of more earthquakes. I've just talked about aftershock productivity. And when there's one big earthquake that's, say, you know, magnitude 7 earthquake, you'd expect a ton of earthquakes. So these are big slow slip events. They're transferring stress throughout the crust. Um, and they're occurring deep, shallow, throughout the entire seismogenic zone. So I'm going to ask just about the stupidest question I can think of, which is, are there more earthquakes during slow slip events, maybe before slow slip events or after? What, how do slow slip events impact uh, the occurrence of earthquakes? And I want to reiterate that this data set is kind of funny because it builds on just a massive effort in Japan to document these, this phenomenon. So I hadn't put citations on Japan just because it's really, it's not just one person, it's, it's a ton of work to reveal all of these individual events. Um, this, this is a bit of a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because we have a ton of events. It's a curse because I'm in a situation where I have multiple people documenting the same area and finding slightly different things. So here's an example. I'm taking a cross section through the Nankai trough. So on the y-axis, we have the distance along the cross-section. On the x-axis, we have time. And each of these boxes uh, are individual slow slip events. So it's clear that some of these events are redundant. So like, for example, here, there's a bunch of different studies finding the same slow slip event. But even what to define as duplicate kind of tricky. But it's also interesting, right? Because it gives it's an opportunity to figure out the types of uncertainties that we're dealing with. So that was one interesting takeaway from this is 
we simply consider all this the duplicate detections and we just say, okay, like how off do they tend to be from each other? What are the different magnitudes and so on? We can gain an intuition for the for the data we're dealing with. So it's reasonable to expect that the timing of these events might be off by a day or or a day, day tens of days or maybe even more. The magnitudes tend to be pretty consistent between studies, although recall it's on a log scale. The duration can be dramatically off. And I'll just put one asterisk here that how the authors choose to segment the raptures matters a lot, right? So I have an example all the way on the right where, or yeah, all the way on the right where one analysis chose to split apart a big slow slip event into many sub events instead of having one big event. It's a messy data set. So when we're going to ask what's the relationship between slow slip and earthquakes, we're not going to be able to ask extremely like finely detailed questions. We're going to ask very coarse questions. And it makes sense. Just I, I initially showed an example of a, uh, a GPS stations uh, with showing the slow slip event and individual stations. I would be remiss to even identify a slow slip event. But as you stack all of these GPS stations, you get something that looks like a step in, in the time series. And, you know, it seems reasonable that you might double the duration of the slow slip event. So again, we're, we're going to be asking pretty coarse questions from this data set. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a fairly mature field. So there's a lot of theories out in the wild for how earthquakes relate to slip events. And I, these are kind of my best summary of the potential options here. It might be that nothing happens. It might be that slip events happen like triggered by an earthquake. It might be that uh, they're inherently part of the nucleation process. So People think that might be the case for like the Tohoku earthquake, for example, or the Aikike sequence where there was a slow slip event before a very big earthquake. So maybe that's inherently part of the nucleation process of big earthquakes. Or we're accelerate, like the slow slip event increases the stress. This causes every potential baby earthquake to, to start accelerating towards failure. So you'd have this like lagged increase in seismicity as all the potential nucleation sites feel the stress. So this is essentially a rate and state prediction. Or it might just be something like proportional to the stressing rate. Or it might be that earthquakes and slow slip events don't really interact and they're, you know, C causes A and B. So that might be a situation where fluids are migrating through the crust and earthquake, the earthquake rate increases in one place. And then as they migrate through a place that is more prone to slow slip events, then we have slow slip events all of these different theories. And almost certainly all of these happen, but I genuinely don't know which happens most often in spite of like spending a lot of time reading these papers and trying to understand what is the typical behavior here. So I want to be a bit more quantitative about this and extract some average behavior from this process. OK, so my approach is going to be to stack the crap out of the data. So I'm going to be I'm going to create a time series of earthquakes, the average time series of earthquakes before, during, and after the slow slip uh, during the slow slip event. So for every single slow slip event, I'm going to create a window around the slow slip event that is 100 kilometers. And it's like a cylinder, so it's 100 kilometers in diameter, 20 kilometers above and below the seismogenic crust, 
uh, I'm considering fairly big earthquakes here, and we're going to center everything relative to the occurrence of the SOSIP event, and then we're going to stack everything into one ser series using Gaussian kernel density. And if that's it's a jargony way of just, you've probably used it by accident when making a histogram. Um, it's essentially just a way of uh, smoothing out a, a point process time series. Like one final note is that I'm very careful here to make sure that any one window doesn't overwhelm the stack. So if, for example, one of the windows contains the Tohoku earthquake that has, you know, bajillions of earthquakes, then if we were to just add up everything, we would end up in a situation where the stack is just Tohoku plus stuff. So the way we're doing that is that we're downweighting everything relative to the number of earthquakes in each window. Technical way of saying just we're going to get the typical behavior. Make sense? So I made this plot giant and pixelated. Um, here we're looking at the essentially the earthquake rate, but it's density of earthquakes as it evolves over time. So the way you interpret this plot is like high means more earthquakes, and the relative height of these you can infer as like how much uh, the slow slip event increased the rate of seismicity. And my, my first takeaway from this plot is there's an effect. We're able to measure it. It's there, statistically significant, trust me. Um, it's not big. It's not a big effect. We're not increasing the seismic rate by a factor of 100 or 1,000, as would be the case for an earthquake. Also, interestingly, it's completely centered on the, the centroid time of the slow slip event. So it seems like there are the most earthquakes exactly coincident with the central time of the earthquake. It's not lagged. Um, there's some gray lines around that, and I'm just going to... Essentially, I did a lot of sensitivity analysis for this result to make sure it's not just Japan overwhelming the data set. So you can run the exact same analysis, but get rid of each individual region, and you end up with essentially the same result. So that's each one of these gray lines. And also, if you... I've also plotted every single individual region below. And although the individual regions have a lot less statistical power, so they're a lot, kind of ran, a lot more random, they all have this sort of hump right around uh, the occurrence time of slow slip events, which make, makes me think that all of these regions essentially share this, this phenomenon of the typical behavior being an increase in seismicity coincident with the slow slip events. Okay, so we've kind of identified what window and time we care about. So I'm going to use that to inform further analysis into the spatial structure here. So is there a spatial structure to the seismicity around these slow slope events? So here I'm going to consider a much bigger window, again, 20 kilometers from this lab. I'm going to center and rotate everything's and I'm, everything, and I'm going to normalize the dimensions so that everything is in the same units of unit source dimensions. Does that make sense? So now the x-axis is going to be distance along dip. The y-axis is distance along strike. This is showing one source dimension. And I'm plotting the density of earthquakes relative to uh, the slow slope events in space. 
And there's two things that I'd like to point out in this slide. Let me just drink a bit. One that I kind of expected, right, because we did the time series, is that there seemed to be more earthquakes coincident with the spatial location of the slow slip events during the slow slip events. Also kind of interesting, and this is not necessarily something I expected, but there's kind of a gap of seismicity where the upcoming slow slip event is going to occur, which I thought was quite neat. So in the left-hand side plot, in the background seismicity, it seems like seismicity tends to be outside of the slow slip events and really just turns on coincident with the slow slip events. And we can plot the ratio of the seismicity during the slow slip event versus background. That gives you a sense of how much we've increased the seismicity. And looking at this, it really seems like, again, right within the source dimensions of the slow slip event is where you get the most increase in seismicity. And I want to be like a bit careful with what I say here. That doesn't mean that earthquakes are occurring where the slip is occurring. It just means that as you combine many potentially you know, heterogeneous slip distributions that I've simplified here, that you know, maybe the earthquakes are occurring along the margins of the slow slip events, but when you pile everything together, you tend to have earthquakes coincident with the slow slip event. I get this question a lot, like what what are the so this I don't see a huge effect, but are there like what are the most statistically significant events and are those special in some particular way? Like what are the the record breakers? Uh, uh, what are the record-breaking slip events? So I, I defined a, a p-value or a significance uh, for the increase in seismicity relative to background. And I'm, I do this in a relatively cartoonish way. So I, I just consider a window of time comparable to the slip event. I randomly select them from the background area. And I say, how often is the background area as high or higher than the slow slip event. So that's going to be my, that's going to be my p value. So the reason I explain this in kind of excruciating detail is because this means that this is a statistically significant. The first column, uh, first row, is a statistically significant slow slip event, even though there's not a ton of earthquakes during it. And the second to last row is also st statistically significant, even though that's what you might more conventionally think of as like a lot of earthquakes associated with the slow slip event. And when I consider just like the most statistically significant, something kind of interesting comes up, which I didn't expect. They didn't tend to be like any particular depth. They just seem to be like the average slow slip event, kind of independent of depth. Some of the more statistically significant ones are deep. Some of them are just the average depth. Some of them, so we can't rule out the possibility that they're actually like fundamentally different depth. They do tend to be larger, and that's not, Super surprising, right? So to loop back to my original question and like the different hypotheses, I think the most tenable hypothesis is that you have the earthquakes turning on coincident with the stressing rate with very little lag. So not quite sure how to reconcile that with like a rate and stake model. And I put a, a little tilde around two other hypotheses. The first one being, yes, indeed, there are a bunch of slip events where there just aren't earthquakes. So the, form, 
the top case happens a lot. And the other thing is, maybe we get, this is more technical, but maybe we get a, a nice Gaussian because we're convolving a bunch of, you know, randomly, like random pulses in seismicity and random pulses in slow slip events. So maybe the seismicity happens first sometimes and after sometimes, but in general it occurs roughly coincident. And as you stack everything together, you end up with a Gaussian. So these are my sort of tentative conclusions for this work. So all of these scenarios happen, but the average behavior seems to be increased in seismicity coincident with slip, and you know, three to five times the background rate, something like that. Uh, so it kind of goes without saying, but the moment you assemble this database, it becomes clear that slow slip associated with giant earthquakes is the exception, not the rule. Uh, there's a small but measurable effect, and there's an interesting, maybe like they're suggestive that it's proportional to the stressing rate increase associated to the slow slip events. And I'm happy to discuss that further, but static stress change models and, for example, rate and state models don't seem to really explain things all that well alone. Okay. This is my attempt to bring everything together. We're going to talk about some new and interesting modeling questions. Uh, approaches. And how am I doing on time? I can do this. Okay. So I've shown how like we really would like to inform our earthquake forecast by this pretty like random set of geophysical observables. And this is also happening in an era of seismology that's really exciting to me, which is almost across the board approaches and automation and machine learning are increasing the number of, of earthquakes and earthquake catalogs by you know, a factor of 10. And this is happening in the places that we're already studying with a lot of intensity. So I think this is a really exciting time to do statistical seismology because we, we have like this like newfound bounty of data. And this is happening with a backdrop of really rich geophysical observations, including thermal models, geodetic models. And currently it's quite cumbersome to integrate these observations into statistical earthquake forecasts. So I would like to ask the question whether whether we can advance our whether the advances in data can translate into advances in earthquake forecasting. And the stumbling block for this, and typically this is when people lose attention when we talk about any task. I'm sorry, Max. <laughs> yeah, so I kept it to the last third of my talk. So I do need to talk about ETAS briefly, but ETAS is a very elegant modeling, modeling framework that frames the occurrence of earthquakes as an epidemic model. So if you've lived in the pandemic, I think you have a very good intuition for this. You know, earthquakes get earthquakes, and every single earthquake has its own little aftershock sequence. So you're saying that the the hazard today is going to be some steady background rate and the superposition of all the previous, the, the tails of every single previous aftershock sequence. And roughly more than three decades ago now, uh, Ogata and some seminal work showed how you can optimize the, optimize the tunable parameters in this model uh, based on the maximum to maximize the likelihood of the observation. So one of the, you can cast the output of the ETAS model as the PDF of when the next earthquake is gonna occur. And if you just take the observation, you, you say, I want the parameters that 
maximize that, you have uh, you have a train you have a trained ECAS model. You can tell where I'm going with this. And I would like to integrate all of these really cool observations into ETAS models. And there's a variety of reasons that this is difficult to do with ETAS. One is just computation. It's like cumbersome to have million earthquake catalogs in an ETAS model. And also, it's just not super obvious how you would integrate information about you know, the heat flow. Like, is that going to affect the K parameter, the background parameter, some combination thereof? So how to do that is cumbersome, and OK, you make a model for that, but someone else is making a model for something else, and how to combine those models afterwards is tricky in its own right. So my proposed solution to this is the recurrent earthquake forecast. I'll be refer referring it to it as recast. So recast lives under the same umbrella as ETAS in terms of a temporal point process model. It's describing events in time. But the only difference is that it encodes the history using a deep neural network, a recurrent neural network. And then the decoder has the task of representing that as a statistical distribution. This is a very complicated way, but I think in the last like year or two years, like the entire society have, has become like ML experts. So I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna talk briefly about natural language models because the intuition is exactly the same. So ChatGPT, which I hope all you guys have played with, uh, is trained on the giant corpus of text to predict the next word. That's what it does. It's really good at predicting the next word. So if you see this sentence, our brains are really good at doing this too. I ran up the, and then you might think hill, stairs, mountain, ramp. Your brain immediately makes like a PMF, like a probability mass function of what the next word might be. So, so we have like this encoding procedure that we, we have like some context and then we decode it into a PMF, like a probabilistic representation of what the next word will be. So recast is the same. We, we're, the input is now a history of observation instead of words, and it's a, the output is a probabilistic representation of the next event time. Does that make sense? And just like recast, if you can do one word, uh, just like ChatGPT, if you can do one word, you can do paragraphs, right? You just do this iteratively. So in this way, you're able to generate extended earthquake forecasts by just iteratively sampling the timing and potentially other characteristics of the, of the earthquake. And without even like talking about you know, the flexibility of the model, just like practically, because this is a recurrent model, computationally much more efficient. And what I mean by that is that its growth in complexity is linear rather than quadratic. And that's because ETAS, every time it's evaluating this likelihood function, it's accounting for the contribution of every single earthquake in the past. Whereas with recast, you're updating some sort of latent representation, some hidden representation of the model with the new earthquake. This might not seem like a big deal, but as we enter this era where like 100,000 event catalog is like normal, that's really tough to integrate into an ETAS model. And like we actually put a lot of work into optimizing the ETAS model itself to just be able to run some comparisons between ETAS and recast. Um, but even then, like no matter what we do, because we're growing complexity as uh, quadratically, it's really hard and annoying. That being said, like earthquakes are also potentially the worst possible task for 
a machine learning approach because they're super random. There are extreme events, they're clustered, they're cascading. Like if you take an ML class, these are like all the no-no things. It's like you, your data should be very clean and like that's what will make a good ML model. So I think it falls upon me to kind of prove that this is a worthwhile approach. So I think if you're skeptical, good. <laughs> um, but the good news is that we know that all of these things are in catalogs, so we can kind of generate fake data and see how well we do on fake data. I don't want to like dive too much into the details, the tables, and the like different tests on different catalogs. And I just I'll, what I'll do is just highlight some key results, and that that'll be an opportunity to present some of the newer stuff because I actually like inflicted versions of this talk to many of the people here. So I'm looking at Max. I think he's seen this talk like too many times. So go to the paper if you care about the technical details. But I'll summarize the results. We we trained, we did head-to-head -head comparisons between ETAS and recast. This is a temporal model, tempo, temporal ETAS model on different catalogs for different areas and different processing techniques. And in all cases, we did like slightly better than ETAS. So this tells me that we're like at least in the running with ETAS in terms, and this is a finding that's like pretty robust to, you know, the completeness of the catalog, how the catalog was prepared, and whether it's like it's not just we're not cherry picking a region or something like that. It really seems that everything that we were able to throw at it, the recast model is doing better. So the other interesting, and I think this is actually the most interesting finding from this study is to try to understand like what was going on. We compared the models head to head with incrementally longer histories. So we played a game, right, where we trained both the ETAS model and the recast model on a tiny history and compared their performance. And then we incrementally increased the size of the data set by extending the history backwards further, further and saw how the head to head performance evolved. This is what I'm showing here. So this is like the goodness of fit. And the takeaway here, I'll let my slides do the talking, are small models are best fit by ETAS models. And as we, uh, small catalogs are best fit by ETAS models. But as we enter this era of like really big tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands event catalog, that's where recast is do doing better. This actually makes like a lot of sense to me. It's like, We've had 30 years of very smart people studying earthquakes, and they've done a really good job with what they had. And like, the only reason this seems to do slightly better is because we're like trailing behind the new data set, the new data sets that are coming out. Like, as we have bigger data sets, there's kind of more that we can find in, in the catalogs. And this is a really consistent story throughout machine learning, where if you have small data sets, expert insight and the ability to extract you know, patterns informed by you know, physics and stuff like that tend to, work, tend to work better than deep learning. But as you enter like situations where you just have a, a lot of data that you can throw at the problem, that's where machine learning does better. And I want to kind of buffer uh, my or contextualize my results with other studies that independently really converged on like eerily sim similar approaches. So this is, and, I, and I've collaborated with a few of, these, few of these people and had a lot of conversations with them, but I think it really creates a cool body of work together, actually. I think the different approaches that we took in detail really show how this 
approach is useful. So I might go over time. Um, so I'd say my most interesting finding, you add more data, you do better. Zlidenko did something similar. So this is Oleg at, at Google, where they instead added the data under the catalog completeness and compare that to ETAS without data under the catalog completeness. And adding the events that are not completely observed significantly improved the machine learning approach to the point that it was better than a space-time ETAS model. So you might think, hmm, that's not really fair, right? ETAS didn't get to see the events below catalog completeness. To, like, to strengthen that result, Sam Stockman out of uh, Bristol did an exercise where he lowered both the catalog completeness that the neural temporal plane process model was using and the ETAS model was using. And as you lower both of them, the NTPP, the neural temporal plane process model starts doing better. So there's a theme, right? It's like you add more data, it's able to model the complexities of the data better than an ETAS model. I'm going to skip this. Uh, <laughs> so one thing is like the improvements, they're there, but they're not, they're not those improvements I talked about earlier with my time machine. We're not like revolutionizing statistical seismology right now. And I think my, my prediction about forecasting is that machine learning is going to be really important if we find ways of adding more data to the pipeline. And unfortunately, we can only go backwards in time so far because you know we have a few decades of observations and that that's what we have so whether or not this trend is going to continue is really up to our ability to add more data into the pipeline and my proposal on this front is what i'll call like multi-catalog training where you actually train a train a general model on many 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 regions with the sort of the hope we really have to hope at this stage that the multiple regions are going to make a better model than the model is just trained on one region. And it kind of makes sense, right? Like a model that is a, that has learned some of statistical seismology from Japan can be insightful in California and vice versa. So this is really my, my vision moving forward where the way to add more data is to train on multiple catalogs. And I've started building the machinery for this. So this is just an example of what I'm kind of envisaging. Here. So I took the, the, the Comcat catalog and I created 2,000 subcatalogs. And each of these subcatalogs is considering a 1,000 kilometer radius window that's four years long, centered randomly around a magnitude six earthquake. So you can see how this might be useful for the type of aftershock tasks that I was talking about early on in this presentation, where you train on a bunch of individual regions, and then once we have a big earthquake sequence, we don't need to retrain the model because this is a general model. And so I ran a few experiments, and this is really like preliminary work, but uh, the test set was from 2015 to 2020, and I, I created like a toy forecast for the Turkey-Syria aftershock sequence. And like to my surprise, I was kind of shocked by this. It did pretty well. And like a, a common pushback against the machine learning and earthquake forecasting is like, oh, you're predicting magnitude zeros. Like, good job, Kelly. But uh, this is a situation where these are we're, we're forecasting magnitude five point uh, magnitude four point fives and above. And if you're the type of person that is like, I don't care about the magnitude four point fives. I care about like 
the abundance of magnitude sevens. Well, that exists in the range of forecasted, the range of simulations that are forecasted in that forecast interval. So you can like simply ask how often in the forecasted uh, forecast interval was there a magnitude seven? You can derive those other characteristics with that approach. And this is not, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. This is what you would do with an e-test model as well. This is where I embarrassed myself, but I felt I had to include it in the talk. So I did this work. Uh, I was like looking at my Google Doc because I put my preliminary results and I was like, it's March 1st. And I actually put a prospective forecast in my Google Doc. I was like, this is what I predict for the next year. So this is my ugly screen grab from my Google Doc. I created a one-year forecast. And it does okay. Like it's not doing great. And I think there's plenty of room to improve, but we're kind of this is where we are kind of six or 180 days later. We're on the lower range of what was forecasted, but maybe reasonable. I kind of leave with like a lukewarm, like this is going somewhere. <laughs> kind of this is probably not where you want to finish a talk, so this is where I'm going to finish my talk. Uh, so to summarize everything, I think there is a way of complementing our existing forecasting machinery by using information about similar earthquakes to, to inform priors on aftershock productivity. These slow slip events, which really kind of remain enigmatic, tend to have seem to have a pretty clear average behavior where there's a small but measurable local increase in seismicity that is coincident with the uh, slow slip event. If there was a slow slip event that occurred, you know, offshore Japan, I'd be like, oh, that's cool. But I wouldn't be like worried. I wouldn't, you know, leave. And finally, I think, I hope I've convinced you that there's really like a promising path forward or at least a really good contender against uh, ETAS uh, using neural temporal point processes to translate better observations into better earthquake forecasts. So in a nutshell, these are my predictions about earthquake forecasting, and uh, I'll take any questions. Kellyan, uh, I'm going to Oh, yeah, I have to do the thing. Mute yourself. and video and because of our audio snafus today I'm going to ask that people in the chat confirm that you can hear the room hopefully yes okay fantastic um questions from the room online um I see a oh Tim first off that was an awesome talk um so I asked this question to Rachel and Jim when he came um so think about earthquake catalog is like a discrete thing of seismicity, and as you drive down the magnitude of completeness, so you get down to like negative seven. It's like starting to continuous. Have you thought about moving earthquake forecasting to using continuous timescales? Yes. So, <laughs> the, for me, like the obvious thing, it's like I just wish I could put like GPS in it, something like that. It's awkward to do in the neural temporal point process because in the word there's a point process and really useful assumption there is that you don't need to 
care about what happens between us. That's what makes point processes so hard. That's not to say like machine learning is like extraordinarily flexible and like consistently the things that like win Kaggle competitions, people that like aren't like me and like I care about keeping my model like really nice and like clean point process in, point process out type of thing. But if you're willing to just be like, I'm going to tack on as a feature, like, so earthquake happens today, and I'll just like add as an input the last three days of GPS data. You could do that. Like, that, there's nothing stopped. Like, I wouldn't have to change the model at all. I could do that right now. And nothing like, yes, you can do that. It feels like wrong to me because I want to keep things nice and like, you know, elegant. But yes, and that's how. Kaggle competitions get launched by not caring about publishers. Yeah. So yeah, really good talk. Thanks. Um, maybe a follow on there a little bit. So you talked about like individual models. Did you put those in there? And I guess early on in this could project, you, the answer is yes. Early on in this project, I I did, and I I wasn't getting like significantly better results, but like there's some like you know. I, I haven't looked early on in this project. I was looking for like results that were like slapping in the face, and there wasn't like an improvement that was slapping in the face. I was like, maybe. And like one of the messy things if you're trying to do that comparison is that you also need to say, is it better than just including location, right? Because maybe temperature is just a bad proxy for location, or maybe a bad proxy for depth. So how to deal with that? I was like, that seems complicated. Future killer. So what about putting the results from the first <coughs> first part of the first and second yeah. part in there? Is that is that in recast? Like there's a nice correlation yeah. that you showed about the geometry, and the energetics, and everything. I haven't done that. So can you put that into recast? The one question is like you might have like a bunch of zeros or a bunch of twos where actually you might be able to do it with this. The ANSS catalog is high threshold, right? Where you do have more information about the earthquake. We don't have information about, we barely have magnitude for magnitude twos. So, yes, you can add you know, focal mechanisms and stuff like that. And that is something I also looked at and also didn't stop in the face with, like, oh, it's doing so much better. Um, but, yeah. So I have a bunch of te technical questions about the third project, but I will spare the room. Actually, I just I want to just add an answer to this, which is the vast majority of my time on this project is like figuring out the benchmarks, like figuring out like what I'm actually comparing against is like what I spend most of my time. I do the, like I make the model does better, and then I spend like, like am I like messing up ETAS in this way or in this way? Are there like long aftershock sequences that are like leaking in, or is like a windowing effect? And there's like all of these like potential ways in which ETAS can like break because I'm not like the pro at ETAS. <laughs> so it's also just kind yeah. of a fragile modeling exactly. system so, with a lot of sensitivities. So a lot of these things are like really easy to do on the ML side and like really messy to figure out what you're like going to write a paper about. So a quick question about the second project. Yeah. Um, so you showed that there was there were some differences in um, the effects you found for different different regions based on the background rate in those regions and i was curious if you i mean that's really tells us that 
uniform spatiotemporal windows might not be um, useful for studying very different regions. Have you looked at like non-uniform windows in um, doing the analysis that you did? Windows that are based on the background seismicity. Well, so this is considered like the way I'm stacking this is stack. It's like makes sense once you think about it, <laughs> which is which is like I'm stacking densities, not rates. So like, mm. so I'm adding like so the thing I'm stacking is like the amount of like you could think of it as like the amount of events during the slip event versus before the slip event. So inherently, it's kind of accounting for these. It's inherently doing what you're saying. I'm basically normalizing the rates by the background seismicity. That's like exactly what I'm doing. I could do the opposite analysis, and that would be interesting as well, which is like maybe it's more meaningful to just say there were oh, there were 10 times 10 more earthquakes, not 10 times more. Because if there were 0.001 earthquakes before, now you've made it 0.01. That's not super exciting. The absolutes might matter as well. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Thank you for saying. <laughs> and maybe this is a follow-up to what Anne Marie was asking. Um, if recast is better than ETAS, um, why is it better? like kind of unexciting reasons. I would speculate, I'm speculating, <clears throat> but I think it's for unexciting reasons. Like, so one situation that where it was clearly doing better, so, and it's, the reasons are different from different catalogs. That was an interesting So when we ran a test on Southern California, we split, we did our like training and validation test split, and our training and validation was like the 80s and the 90s. And then the testing was like in the 2000s. There are less earthquakes in the 2000s. Which is, that's just like how California is. There's less earthquakes. So, and that's really highlighting how ETAS is like calibrated to the training set. So if the thing you're testing on is different, like if the system mm -hmm. changes, then the model is going to do this. And like, there are solutions to this. People make non-stationary ETAS models. But you're always kind of like yeah. you might be able to fix that problem, but there might be another problem that comes up. Like there are other situations where, like I I also suspect that in some catalogs, especially if you have like temporal changes, like if you have aftershock sequences and you're like transiently incomplete, so then you're breaking the assumptions of the task model in this new way, then. Again, you, the recast model is not making like stringent assumptions about the data. We'll start getting better. Okay, fix that thing. We're gonna do have we're gonna have a non-stationary model that has transient incompleteness ETAS model. And like, yeah, cool. And then there's gonna might be like another thing that'll happen that be like I can keep going down the list. Those types of issues, and I think. A machine learning approach is just at some point it's going to be so parametric that yeah. what have you gained from your class? Got a question online from David Shelley. David Shelley, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Sure. Uh, yeah, thanks for the really nice talk. 
my question was just about the association between slow slip events and earthquakes. I mean, it makes sense that, you know, the two would be associated. We know about after slip and, you know, the examples you cited of slip that may precede large earthquakes, but we're also more inclined to look for slow slip events associated with big earthquakes. So how do you make sure that that's not contaminating your data set? That's such a good question. I'm so glad you asked it because I, I've spent like a lot of time anguishing about this. Uh, for example, I don't have the Akike slip event in there because it was one of those situations where, as you described, there was a big earthquake. And I don't wanna I don't wanna speak for what they did, but yeah, there's a much higher chance that you detect a slow slip event before a big earthquake, just because that's an interesting time to study the earth. The vast majority of the data set, the vast, vast majority of the data set are systematic analyses, you know, that are like 10 years, 20 years in length. So I don't think that issue is creeping in because we're really at the stage where motivi motivated by these early findings, a lot of people have taken on the task of creating systematic analyses. So, you know, all these studies, or at least for the most part, these studies are dealing with big slows of events that are systematic. Thanks, really nice talk. Uh, last question. Yeah. Um, I, I was curious, this is kind of maybe a, not a super specific question, but about the recast. So the recast is looking at different features, and you mentioned some things that you tried adding as adding as features to go into the first model. Um, had, did, did In your training, did you find that it discards things that you thought were important or um, highlights things in the in feature weights that um, you didn't think were going to be important aspects of the catalogs that are going in that we maybe didn't 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 think about beforehand. Yes. <laughs> uh, on the discarding side of things, this is like increasingly conventional wisdom in ML, which is the models are pretty good at ignoring stuff. It like doesn't hurt a model a ton if you give it bad data. They'll just turn off that data. They'll just be like, no. <laughs> um, Insofar as extracting interesting data, I'll give you like one interesting example. Ah, I don't have this slide, which is when I was running these experiments with Turkey about like what if I generate for those trees so far. So I was like, what if I generate the forecast immediately before the Turkey earthquake? Mind blowing result. It didn't create the Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but more interesting, what if you you issue a forecast of a long term forecast? The second after the, the big range shock, so magically happens to issue the forecast. And it kind of turns on the seismic. Like it knows that a big earthquake happens, but it like, you know, it's predicting a measly amount of, of aftermath, like much less than you would expect. But like four more observations, like four more earthquakes happen, that like after a big earthquake is like immediate, like within the you know, seconds after a big earthquake, there's going to be more earthquakes once the code happens out. And then it's like, oh, now I'm an aftershock sequence, and then it turns off. So it's it's kind of doing something counterintuitive, right? So it might be extracting different features that are like, you could imagine, like maybe it's actually recognizing the transient incompleteness. It's like, this is a big thing because I'm getting like, because the magnitudes are. So it could be doing 
counterintuitive things that like we as seismologists would jump to. Maybe it's just because of the Thanks. Yeah. All right, folks. Uh, let's thank Kelly again. <laughs>